Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. My guest today is Matthias Clayson, author of the book A Very Nervous Person's Guide to Horror Movies, published in 2021 by Oxford University Press. In our talk, we review his previous work related to horror and discuss various aspects of how people can overcome their concern about scary movies. We also review the various studies and surveys that helped him develop his ideas. I hope you enjoy my interview with Matthias Clayson. Hi, Matthias. How are you? I'm good, thank you. The book is A Very Nervous Person's Guide to Horror Movies, and the author with me today is Matthias Clayson. And uh, the book is going to come out from Oxford University Press. Before we talk in detail about the book, let's get a little bit of background about you. As you say right at the beginning of the book, you... um, or you consider yourself to be a horror movie expert or horror. I don't remember now whether it was just movies or anything horror-related, but you can talk about that. So I guess in order to be nice about it, but I still got to say it, what's wrong with you? No, I'm kidding. (laughs) So if you give me a little bit of background about what led you in your life to decide that horror was going to be a topic that you were going to study. Yeah, well... um... Actually, that professional interest, so my research interest in horror, and that interest covers horror in all media. So horror movies, horror literature, horror video games, haunted attractions, and so on. But that professional interest actually springs out of personal fascination. Uh, But it wasn't always fascination for me. Uh, And I have these very distinct, vivid memories from my own childhood of being terrified by ghost stories of watching horror movies that really uh, scared me very, very badly. Um, But I think even those overwhelming experiences with scary stories uh, sparked an interest in me, made me think about the big why. You know, why do people do this stuff? Why do people spend time and money to be frightened, witless by movies and books and so on? So I think I was probably in my teenage years when I started truly being um, uh, truly positively engaging with horror, you know, getting actual pleasure out of watching horror movies and 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 reading books by Stephen King and Edgar Allan Poe and Lovecraft and all the other greats. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I don't consider myself to be a horror fan, so to speak. I have seen plenty of horror movies, although I tend to go with older ones because, frankly, I don't like gore, and a lot of the newer movies seem to depend a great deal on that. You've been able to access United um, Western horror films, so to speak, because your book pretty much just sticks to, and your most of the material you've written in the past is pretty much sticks to um, that type of horror film versus plenty the, all the other material that's out there from other countries. Is that right? That's right. Um, But that's partly because I work in an English department. So I have a kind of uh, 
an obligation to to focus on English language, literature and films. But it's also where my interest lies. I mean, that's the, the stuff that has always interested me. Uh, but there has never been an issue with availability, especially not in this globalized world. I mean, you can stream pretty much anything. Yeah, it's about to ask you because you even talk about it in the book. You mentioned The Haunting of Hill House from Netflix. So mm. um, clearly these days are probably the golden era for being able to get a hold of material from all kinds of eras, not even just current. I mean, older material is very easy to find. And if it's old enough, you can often find it without having to pay a cent for it. So if it's really old, like silent films and things like that. That's right. So where do you, you are currently and have been, I assume, for quite a while at, at, say it to me again, I know I asked you before, I want to make sure I get it right, it's Aarhus University, or is it University of Aarhus? Which way am I supposed to be? Well, it used to be University of Aarhus, but now it's Aarhus University, so, Aarhus. <laughs> yeah. And you've been there how long, and, and you're obviously, as you pointed out, you're in the English department, but mm. uh, I assume you're also able to do work within your field in, in your everyday life. Yeah, so I've been at Aarhus University for a very long time. Um, I enrolled as a student in the English department back in 2001 um, and then discovered during my studies that um, there was something here. You know, there was something I wanted to keep doing, uh, studying literature, studying films. And then through a combination of stubbornness and luck, I was able to secure tenure. So I got my associate professorship uh, four years ago, um, and I've been sticking around ever since. I've also been incredibly fortunate to um, to collaborate with some very sharp scientists, and we can talk about some of those collaborations, but they have resulted in a big grant that allowed me to establish my own research lab so that I'm now director of the Recreational Fear Lab also at Aarhus University. Yeah, that's one of the things about the book, and we'll get into it, is that you talk about horror, but you also bring in quite a bit of sociological, physiological, psychological aspects and studies. It's not, you know, it's definitely what we would call an academic approach, a scholarly approach to the topic, although obviously you include many of, you know, popular information, and you even say that right at the beginning, that you're hoping that this is a book that would reach across lines as far as what it pr includes. And this isn't your first book on the topic. What was your, your previous book was from 2017, and it was also related to horror. What was that book? That's right. Um, so I did a book in 2017 called uh, Why Horror Seduces, also with um, Oxford University Press. Uh, but that was more of a classic academic monograph. I mean, right. I tried to make it sexy. I tried to make it... Uh, approachable in terms of language and style. But that book is one long argument for approaching uh, the academic study of horror in a specific way. Uh, so that's one of the things I've been working on for a long time is, is trying to integrate biology and psychology into the study of horror. Um, so that was basically the, the mission of why horror seduces. I've also done a couple of books in Danish. Um, but I don't think they would be as interesting to, to our listeners. Well, we have worldwide, but I agree with you. <laughs> probably very, uh, overall, m many of our uh, listeners probably don't speak Danish. So, But I know you've done a lot of writing. And I, I also saw a number of your um, appearances. You've done all the kind. You, you're very wired into video and social media. So the good thing is, and I think you even mentioned it in the book, that you actually use some of that wiring to help you with some of your research that you've done for some of the studying for this book where, as we've already said, you do a lot of material that is uh, based off of research and other kinds of surveys and such, and we'll get into mm -hmm. that in a second. And then, of course, you have a, a TED, it's TEDx, I guess is officially what you call it. There was a TEDx talk yeah. that I know is very well known, and that's great to see too. So there's plenty of information about you out there that uh, people can go to if they want to learn more. So yeah. What was you? Let's let's talk about the book now. Obviously, um, what was your reasoning? As as I've mentioned and we've talked about already, your your book starts from a why question. Obviously, is why do people mm. watch horror films? And because obviously there are people out there who don't 
like who will come right out and say they don't like horror films. And I'm going to be honest, I'm one of them. I'm mm-hmm. very, I don't, I don't think I've watched a current horror film in a while. Not that I don't want to. It's just, it's, I agree with you at the beginning. You said you don't really want to watch horror. You don't like watching horror films by yourself. Um, but it's also the idea that I'm very picky about what I'm going to watch because I don't, as I mentioned earlier, I don't like gore. Um, and unfortunately to me, many current horror films seem to be based on that more and more, but you can tell me more if I'm wrong on that. But, uh, <laughs> so let's, let's, let's get into that a little bit. What, what, what kind of studying or what kind of surveying did you do to try to come up with your, uh, initial chapter where you talked about is what's the big deal and who watches them? Right. But the idea for the book actually came from my editor at Oxford University Press, um, an incredibly uh, nice and very, very uh, smart guy called Norm Hershey. Um, he asked me, say, uh, why don't you do a book on, on horror movies directed at people who are interested in horror movies, but also kind of nervous about them? Um, and I thought that sounded like a great idea. And uh, that's when I used my my um, online network, as you said before. So I would ask on Twitter and on Facebook uh, if people were nervous about horror and if so, why? And I got a lot of very interesting responses. Uh, Lots of people telling me that they like horror movies, but they hate the jump scare. Or like you, they enjoy uh, scary movies, but they really don't like the gore. Um, Or they are afraid of having nightmares or flashback memories from the film. Or they're nervous about the the moral uh, structure of horror movies. Um, And so I started collecting all of those responses and sorting them into categories. And that categorization of responses became the chapter organization of the book. So there is a chapter on who watches horror movies and why. A chapter on uh, jump scares, uh, psychological health, physical health, uh, morality kids and horror movies, those kinds of things. So that was really helpful for me to get um, an actual sample of actual concerns about horror movies, which I could then address in the book. Yeah, because right at the beginning, you you get, you, you, as I said before, you did a lot of uh, work in compiling, but also reviewing other studies related to, as they say, sociological, psychological, and those kind of things. And of course, that becomes an important part. So even though there's a lot of information in this book related to your own research, but you also made sure to make the most of other studies that have ever been out there so that you try to draw it together as much as possible. Uh, like I say, what's interesting is, is I've seen older horror films. I still remember I saw Exorcist when it came out. I saw Jaws when it came out. But and Halloween when it came out, and yet, and the funny part about it is those films, I mean, they I don't consider them to be similar to the kind of films now, so that's why, and as I said before, I could be completely wrong since I tend to, to avoid them, but that's what we're talking about, people who are nervous. So mm-hmm. one of the things you talk about, and, and this is the, as you pointed out, is the way things are set up, um, People have people, whether they watch horror films or not, but particularly if they don't, they have preconceived notions as to what horror films will do to you. Um, what was and one of the things you do talk about is that you have a lot of uh, studies to try to show when people were probably right about that and when they weren't. So mm. l- let's talk a little bit about various aspects that you talk about in the book. And the first thing you talk about are jump scares, and that's what you mm-hmm. call it. Other people have different names for it, but the concept should be pretty obvious, and that's when something happens unexpected and you're not prepared, or at least in theory are not prepared, and it's the uh, thing that ju- you know jumps out at you, so to speak, and unexpectedly, the it's you know a scary face, it's a monster, or anything else. So uh, jump scares are obviously these days become the norm almost in in horror films, I would think. When did you, in your discussion and your review of jump scares, um, do you feel like they've become the most important part in many ways of horror films? Or the average horror film depends on jump scares? Or are we still looking at uh, filmmakers who are not always depending on that in order to get fear? 
Yeah, that's a good question. And I think, I think the answer is going to be a little bit complicated. Uh, but I thought jump scares were interesting because um, everybody has an opinion on jump scares. And most people that I've talked to feel that jump scares are a cheap trick that a horror movie maker can uh, use if that movie maker doesn't have anything better to do, <laughs> pretty much. Mm -hmm. uh, most people feel that horror movies that rely on atmosphere and suggestion and the gradual uh, buildup of dread, that that's the real art and that jump scares are just cheap, cheap tricks. Um, but I hope to kind of, one of the things I hope to do with that chapter was to sort of redeem the jump scare because some of the most effective jump scares in modern horror movie history are very tightly choreographed cinematic effects. And I see why they're perceived as cheap uh, because what a jump scare will do is that it will, um, it will exploit a so-called startle response that is wired into human nature, uh, but that we share with a bunch of other animals. So you can, you can expose a cat to a jump scare or a rat, uh, or even, you know, you can make a, a tiny jump scare on a snail if you come across a snail. Uh, and those different species react in pretty much the same way. Um, so it's a really very basic and evolutionarily ancient mechanism uh, that protects us from sudden danger. And horror movies can uh, take advantage of that uh, mechanism by exposing us to, to some kind of sudden stimulus, usually a combination of, of, um, of an image and a loud sound. Um, and it's true that I found some statistics that show that the jump scare has become more frequent in horror movies so in the 1960s, there was, on average, I think about two jump scares per horror movie. Nowadays, it's more like 10 jump scares. Uh, and some, jump, some movies have a lot of jump scares, like It, the new, the, well, recent movie based on uh, Stephen King's classic novel. Mm -hmm. It's full of jump scares, and you're kind of a smoking wreck once you're done with that film, because it keeps just uh, zapping your, your nervous system. Um, but one thing I've found it difficult to do in that chapter on jump scares was to provide any kind of advice on how to uh, mitigate the unpleasantness of the jump scare. And that's because the startle response is so basic, you really can't control it. Um, that there is very little you can do to avoid being jump scared, to avoid being shocked by a jump scare. Um, small amounts of alcohol seem to dampen the the startle response a bit. Um, and of course, the context in which you watch a horror movie also plays in. So there is a difference between sitting in a movie theater where it's dark and a huge screen and an, an awesome sound system and being jump scared. And then sitting at home in daylight watching something on a small screen. Uh, so for people who want to watch horror movies but don't want to be jump scared too bad, um, they should probably watch horror movies at home. One of the things that you talk about early on, actually, and I meant to bring it up, but I think this is a good place to continue to, to talk about it, is what constitutes a horror movie. Because obviously there are some movies that aren't theoretically labeled horror movies, but they contain the elements of horror movies. And some of them are obviously horror movies. I consider Alien, for example, it's a horror movie. It's a haunted house film in, in space. Um mm. Jaws is a horror movie, even though there's nothing super. It doesn't have to be supernatural in order for it to be a horror movie. Now, people can disagree on different things, but I think in both of these cases, they share the jump scare. Both films have jump scares. And um, do you feel like, uh, I mean, obviously other films have jump scares as well, non-horror movies. I guess what changes something from being a horror movie to being just suspenseful or a thriller that just happens to, for example, include jump scares? Right. Um, that's a really tough question. Actually, it's a question I've been trying to sidestep for my whole career. <laughs> uh, it came up in my PhD defense nine years ago uh, because I wasn't able to come up with a really good, solid definition. I just said, you know, horror movies are movies that are designed to scare the audience. But you're totally right. You can find, I mean, you can find the elements of horror in things that are obviously not horror. Um, the jump scares, monsters, um, 
scenes that are anxiety inducing. Um, so I guess it's really a matter of how much of that horror material is in a given movie. Um, so it's perfectly conceivable to, to, to uh, imagine a movie that's 90 minutes long and has a two minute horror scene, mm -hmm. but the rest is comedy or science fiction or something else. So I guess it's a matter of um, substance or, or frequency. And then of course there are uh, hybrids like horror comedies, Gremlins, for example, modern classic that has uh, horror elements and, and, and comedic elements. And that spooked a lot of kids because many children uh, went to see that film. Um, so, so, you know, it's very difficult to, to come up with a good definition, I think. Um, and the, the borders between horror and um, neighboring genres like thriller and suspense films, uh, those are very kind of porous borders. And actually, sometimes um, people will put the thriller label on a movie that is, to everybody else, obviously a horror movie. Uh, it happened with um, Silence of the Lambs when it was nominated for an Oscar award. Um, everybody was very eager to not call it a horror movie because there are certain prejudices associated with the horror genre. So it was labeled a thriller instead, which sounds more um, culturally acceptable, I guess. Yeah, I think uh, when, when you ask the average person, especially if they're not a horror expert or somebody who watches them regularly, they would probably say there has to be some sort of a supernatural element or a ghost or those kinds of things. But as, as we know, there are plenty of films that definitely count as horror but aren't in any way, shape, or form. They're all quote-unquote realistic, so to speak. Um, very little, if anything. Um, when, As far as filmmakers who don't use jump scares that much, uh, who would you think in your own opinion, are particularly great horror filmmakers, but don't depend particularly on jump scares or don't um, that much. Can you think of anybody yeah. that you would come up with that would you say is a great horror film director, but didn't really depend that much on jump scares? Uh, Hitchcock comes to mind. Um, Hitchcock did some horror movies like uh, Psycho and uh, mm -hmm. uh, The Birds, uh, a lot of suspense movies as well. And he has the occasional jump scare. There is a very famous scene in, in Psycho involving a certain mother <laughs> and a chair uh, that gave a lot of people a jump scare. Um, so that would be one example. Um, I think one of my favorite horror movie directors is John Carpenter, mm -hmm. uh, who did Halloween and a bunch of other horror movies that are now considered classics. And he uses the occasional jump scare, uh, but he relies much more on an atmosphere and a, and, a, and a kind of slow burn tension build uh, to to um, to affect his audience. Uh, so th those would be two examples. Right. Actually, I think you pointed out quite well about Hitchcock because Hitchcock tended to let you know in advance that something was coming. It's the infamous oh. MacGuffin story where there's got to be a reason, and the more you, the, if you know about it in advance, you're going to be more likely to be tension. The tension will go up because you know it's coming. And obviously, a carpenter to a large extent uh, went that way as well, uh, as you say. Hall Halloween doesn't really have many in the sense of jumping out, at least that you didn't weren't expecting because, you know, Michael Myers was around. It's just a matter of, okay, when's he appearing? And so that wasn't completely surprising when, when it happens. And, in fact, Halloween has absolutely no supernatural elements till the end. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, until they shoot, he gets shot and falls down and then suddenly disappears, it's really not supernatural. It's But you're right, it doesn't have and, and jump scares. Then I, I'm thinking of somebody like De Palma where... Yes, he has jump scares, but there's tend to be ones that you're expecting, at least somewhat yeah. the same way. The only ex the, the one example I can think of of a true jump scare from De Palma, of course, was at the end of Carrie. Yeah. Where yeah. That that is a pure jump scare. Anybody who's seen that movie and didn't didn't know about that scene when it first came out always point to it as being and yet it really didn't advance the plot in any way shape or form and he didn't really have any jump scares in the rest of the film. So it was it was an interesting, you know, at the very end. I mean, he, he does it again a couple more times in later films, but it is an interesting concept of 
good horror that every once in a while they still have to throw the jump scare in. It's like they can't help themselves, you know. Right. Like you almost see them wringing their hands and smiling in anticipatory pleasure at imagining this huge audience uh, screaming. I, I, I think um, every time I don't I haven't watched the film in a long time, but every time I watch it, I still get scared by it because even though I know yeah. it's coming, because it's yeah. so well done. Exactly, um, and I think it, you mentioned Jaws before, and um, there is especially one famous jump scare involving a severed head right. underwater. Right. And, and Spielberg put a lot of effort into shooting and reshooting that scene. I think he ended up reshooting it in his own swimming pool because he wanted the timing to be just right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when the film was screened um, and people, you know, they screamed and they ran out of the movie theater. And there was one guy, according to legend, who ran out of the movie theater and vomited and ran back in. And, <laughs> and Spielberg saw this and he, he said to himself, that's when he knew he had a hit on his hands. Right. And that was the, the jump scare scene that really that right. really worked. But once again, there's only one or two other. There is one other one, and that's when um, Brody's throwing the chaw into the into the ocean <laughs> and suddenly the, the, the shark appears. And that was a that was a jump scare because nobody you know, now you know it. Like you say, I think you mentioned this in the jump scares chapter that you can start to one way to get over jump scares is to understand when they're likely to come. And you've got you give some examples of okay, when it gets quiet or when this happens or this happens, that might tell you a jump's coming up, so be prepared. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's about learning kind of the grammar of of the horror movie. And once you get that grammar or syntax down, the, the basic structure or rhythm, you can start anticipating the jump scares. And that's one way in which you can steal yourself. It doesn't completely extinguish the startled response, but it, it can moderate it slightly. So then the next two chapters deal with two aspects related to horror films. The first is mental health and the second is physical health. And mm. you give some examples. Let's start with the mental health chapter of People who, and I think your general point is, is people who already have some issues, particularly psychological issues, are likely to be affected, could be likely to be affected by um, horror films. But what about the average person? What was your um, take after doing your research on it? Right. Yeah, so that was one concern that I've been coming across quite a lot, is that uh, horror movies are potentially psychologically harmful, that they can damage people permanently. Um, And I've come across a few articles in the scientific literature that talk about cinematic neurosis, which supposedly is when people are uh, clinically traumatized by horror movies. But once I really dug into that, um, that scientific field and that research literature, it became evident that that those cases of, of people being truly psychologically harmed by horror movies are extremely rare. And it seems to always involve people with, as you say, uh, pre-existing conditions. Um, and so there are these instances in, in cinematic history where a horror movie will affect people very strongly and uh, rumors will start going about uh, people um, suffering long-term trauma because of those movies. Um, the Exorcist is one. Uh, Poltergeist has or had that reputation. Jaws had that reputation. Uh, Blair Witch Project. Um, but it really, for, for people without serious psychological issues, there doesn't seem to be any real risk. It's not that you get traumatized. Uh, it does not, horror movies do not cause... Um, post-traumatic stress disorder. They can cause nightmares and they can cause you to, I mean, I still get a little bit antsy when I've seen a really scary movie and I have to take the dog for a walk and it's dark outside. Sure, I can feel my my my, my anxiety levels uh, spiking, uh, but that's to be expected. You know, that's the horror movie uh, setting that whole fear system into into action. But, but but psychological trauma is not something people should be worried about. Well, frankly, the only thing Blair Rich Project did for me was give me a headache. <laughs> I saw it in the theater and all the moving around, the camera movement was just after a while. It just got, it, like I say, I can't put it any other way. It gave me a headache. And 
you know, so as far as that's concerned, that was a physical part of it. But yeah. I guess my thought process is there's plenty of other films that are not horror films that can do the same thing, I would think. I mean, I still won't wa- I mean, I've only seen Saving Private Ryan maybe twice, and not because mm. of the opening. It's more the scene later, at, towards the end when the one American soldier gets killed by the German with his knife. I mean, that scene just completely grosses. Not, even though there's no gore, that scene mm. just completely... I can't watch that film because of that scene. I just don't want to see it again. So right. I would think that that's where a big difference would be, that if horror films can do it, so can other films. Right, yeah, I, I agree. So the physical health, um, it's obviously similarly related. I would think that somebody who has physical ailments already might have issues. I mean, we've heard the stories of people being scared to death, so to speak, or having heart attacks. Mm-hmm. Is it is it something? Has there been any studies to indicate that uh, you know somebody could literally die unless they already had a physical condition that was up, you know, going on an ongoing condition? No, I mean I did find a few cases of what appears to be people dying from fright because of horror movies, but they're they're sketchy and they're poorly described and they're usually journalistic reports. So no kind of scientific investigation. Um, a normal, uh, healthy person could not die from watching a horror movie. I mean, there are a bunch of uh, predictable and expected physiological effects. I mean, you can you can expect your heart rate to increase. You can expect to get uh, sweaty palms. Uh, your hairs might stand on end. All those kinds of things. But it's not the case that uh, your heart is going to stop from fright. Uh, it could be in the future that somebody uh, develops, maybe not a horror movie, maybe a horror virtual reality simulation that is sufficiently scary to kill off somebody, at least somebody with a heart condition. But 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 I don't think I don't think unless you have such a condition, you shouldn't be worried. And then we can move on to the morality aspects, which makes sense. I mean, there is no question, but it's not just, once again, we keep saying this, but I'm going to keep mentioning it because it's true. Morality in film doesn't necessarily just mean horror films. Um, Mm. Obviously, there are people who believe things like the Harry Potter films and the books aren't good because they feel like it, you know, allows for witchcraft, so to speak, which they think is immoral. So, uh, horror films, um, obviously, depending on the the um, um, situations, could have morality issues. But what had, what was your review? What did you feel, find as far as where people avoid horror films because of the morality issues? Or is that more just one of those things people say that turn out not really to be the case? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a common concern that horror movies aren't only psychologically harmful, they are morally corrosive, um, that they will um, either appeal to immoral people or erode the viewer's morals. Um, But those kinds of claims usually come from people who don't really know anything about horror movies, uh, because most horror movies are actually very moral. Uh, They usually have a very strong moral structure. there are horror movies that I find unpleasant to watch and that rub against my own sense of morality, but that's very rare. Um, but I think, I think that the, the real concern here is that, uh, that people will be um, infected with the, immora- the perceived immorality of horror movies. That if young people, for example, watch a lot of slasher movies, they will adopt the lack of morality that they see on the part of the slasher villain. But there is no science to support such an idea. Uh, People aren't passive receptacles of movies. Uh, A lot of studies have shown that when people watch movies, they're actively and also often critically engaged. They resist what they watch. Um, They they process it. They, um, They engage with it. And there is a parallel here, I think, in those recurring discussions about violent movies and aggression. 
uh, where a going concern is that if you watch many violent movies, you will come and become a more violent person. But again, that's that's not the case. Um, people don't become violent from watching violent movies, and most people are. I think most people are good, uh, non-violent, uh, pro-social citizens who can find pleasure in watching what they know to be fictional depictions of violence. I mean, I enjoy watching Bruce Willis kick the ass of bad guys as much as, you know, the next dude uh, doesn't turn me into um, a violent aggressor. Um, so, so that was one concern that, that I think I was able to hopefully put to rest. Well, and I would think as somebody who, like I say, what reads Stephen King and certain other horror authors, what I always feel is I'm rooting for the good guy. Generally yeah. speaking, um, horror films tend to go with the good versus bad pretty obviously. You, I mean, as most of these cases, you know who the, who the po- positive person, who the good people are, and you know who the bad people are or, or bad spirits or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And horror movies, from my experience, tend to be pretty obvious that way. Every once in a while, you might get a, a villain who has... And for some reason, vampires tend to be that way, where for some reason in many vampire films, there is a certain amount of, of desire to make the vampire at least um, real, you know, personable or having some sort of positives, or, you know, that might people might be interested in. They're usually handsome or if they're women, beautiful and those kind of things. But most other films that I've seen, it's pretty obvious the good versus bad. I think that's exactly right. There is often a very kind of black and white morality in in horror movies. I mean, it's clear to everybody who you're supposed to root for in The Exorcist and who you're supposed to not root for. Uh, same in, in every uh, uh, major horror movie example that, that comes to mind. And of course, there is a certain appeal in, in the anti-hero and the morally complicated protagonist. I mean, that's something that's maybe especially recently... Um, become more and more popular in uh, in shows like um, Dexter or Sopranos or uh, Mad Men or Breaking Bad. So again, those are not horror shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and and maybe maybe there are fewer kind of morally complicated characters in horror than in other genres, which in itself would be very interesting. You see it more, like I say, I think in literature. Horror literature tends to be more rich as far as the characters, but that's sometimes yeah. part of it. The good horror films shouldn't be very long. I mean, I know you mentioned 90 minutes, and frankly, these mm. days, it seems like more and more films are, all kinds of films, not just horror, are reaching past that two-hour mark. It used to be you never went past two hours. But in the day of right. multiplexes, they can show the movie so many different times. It's not like the old days where you only had one or two screens and you couldn't afford to show a movie, a three-hour movie or a two-and-a-half-hour movie regularly because there wasn't enough time. But mm. nowadays, and I mean, I, I, do you, is it your, what are you, this is totally unrelated to what we're talking about, but still horror movie related. Do you have particular thoughts about movie lengths and, and their value or lack of value to horror not really. That's that's not something I've thought about or or studied. Um, but it it, seems, it does seem to be the case. Certainly, that horror movies get longer and longer. There there might be a, a kind of counter movement uh, because I think some of the independent productions that are, I mean, this is it, it's a really good time now to be a horror fan because there are so many good horror movies coming out from studios like Blumhouse and A twenty four and a bunch of um, American studios. Uh, and those movies tend not to be very long. But but sometimes, I mean, the, the It movies were much too long for me. I know that the novel, you know, I taught Stephen King's It a couple of years ago. Um, I actually asked my students to read a 1,400 novel, 1,400-page novel in two weeks. Mm-hmm. And they did because it's an awesome novel. Right. Um, and I can see the, the, the issues with turning that into a feature film. Um, but I still thought they were, they overstayed their welcome a little bit. Yeah, at least the stand, they've it's come out twice now. In both cases, it was miniseries, and uh, yeah. And the good thing is that is a novel, and that to a large extent the the positives and negatives of both the good guys and the bad guys come out. I mean, none yeah. of the characters are what we would consider to be pure, one mm-hmm. way or the other. 
or most of them aren't. So it becomes pretty obvious the way they made them, both of them, both the original miniseries and then the later one, um, were able, because they went longer, to take advantage of that in order to um, make characters, real characters, as opposed to the good versus bad. Even though in the end, the movie, the whole story, the whole book and the films are good versus evil. That is the key to the whole thing. It is, but it's still, I think you're right that that these metaphysical forces of good and evil, they attract, they both have their peculiar attractions. And some of the most interesting characters in the stand are torn between those two forces, like um, Harold Lauder, for example, right. who, of course, goes over to the dark side. Um, but that actually the old miniseries, uh, Mick Garris's The Stand, that was what really turned me on to horror uh, almost, what is it, 25 years ago. Right. And then I started, I started, I read The Stand by Stephen King, and then I read everything by Stephen King. And then I went back and read everything that had inspired Stephen King. Um, so I really, I owe my career to Stephen King is, is how I like to think of it. Yeah, I still remember reading, and I even though it's an older book, quite an older book now, Dance Macabre, the one nonfiction book he wrote on horror. I mean, that's where so much of what I feel about horror and movies that he's mentioned, that back in the day when that book came out, that was pre-video. So yeah. to see some of those films that he talked about in there were very difficult to do. And in fact, the whole last section is about how he wrote The Stand. But one of the things he always talked about was the different levels of horror and then mm. how filmmakers sometimes go for the most cerebral type of horror and then sometimes the, the morph scare and then finally just the gross out if they have yeah. to. So it, it, he, 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 he created what I thought was a very good way of looking at horror films. So... Um, that's a good thing. Um, now, yeah, and I think I think if if your listeners um, only have money to buy one book, they shouldn't buy my book. They should buy Das Macabre. It really, it's really good. Yeah, and, and like I said before, that was one of those film books that I wish he would he would update. I wish he would write oh, yes. a new version of it. I know he's he's putting out his one and two books a, a year, which is fine, and they're great. It's just that was I, I always find his nonfiction writings to be interesting because of things like that, because he comes up with ideas that make perfect sense. It's just mm-hmm. he writes them down in a way that uh, um, makes them interesting. Yeah, so, I agree. So then we talk about we talked about morality, but the next chapter then discusses the idea of intelligence and, and people who aren't intelligent are more likely to watch horror films that's the 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 idea is that supposedly people think that you have to be a little lower in intelligence to watch horror films and i think we've pretty well already taken care of that in many ways but um do people in 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 reviewing when you do you have people who sort of don't want to admit that they watch horror films because they're afraid it'll make them look less intelligent yeah i come across that fairly often. Um, again, one of these biases or prejudices that people who like horror are unsophisticated or dumb or unpolished, uncultured. And there are some studies that find that there is a slight correlation between, actually a negative correlation between educational attainment and uh, horror preference, which is to say that uh, horror fans statistically speaking, on average, tend to be slightly less educated than non-fans. I don't think that says anything about intelligence. I think it says something about prejudice. I think if you have a very long education and you work like like I do in a a university, uh, you will be surrounded by a lot of snobs who look down on horror. And you might be unwilling to admit that you enjoy being scared by movies about zombies and... uh, and serial killers and masks and so on. Um, but the thing is, um, it could be it could be that this prejudice has to do with the fact that horror movies target what seems to be primitive emotions, you know, fear, anxiety, disgust, those kinds of emotions. Um, but for one thing, I don't I don't see what the problem is. I mean, most people expect to be emotionally moved by movies, no matter what genre. You want your emotions to be brought to life. You want to laugh or cry or scream. Uh, And secondly, the best horror movies don't just appeal to emotions. They appeal to the intellect as well. 
I mean, there are very clever horror movies out there. Um, they also appeal to the aesthetic senses. I mean, you can watch a really good horror movie and marvel at the way in which it's made, marvel at a certain shot composition or the mise-en-scene in a, in a particular scene or the acting. Um, so, so, yeah, um, that's, that's another unfortunate uh, prejudice that, that horror and horror fans suffer under. I think also, to me, it depends also on the films. I mean, we know that, at least in the United States, Hollywood uses a pretty tried-and-true method of when they bring out some of the horror films. It's usually right after a major uh, season. So, for example, not unusual in September we see a lot of horror films. Not unusual in January we see a lot of horror films because they've brought out their blockbusters. Now they have to try to still keep people in the theater, and so they'll bring out the some of the worst horror films in the world just to get people into the theaters. And I think when you look at horror films, to put them all into the same camp and say they're all bad, that all, you must be stupid to watch any of them, is pretty bad given that, as you point out, some of the greatest directors and, and, and writers have continued to write in the horror genre. And we continue to get good horror films coming out, not just uh, uh, what we would call the the to use an English word, schlock, although it's probably Yiddish. So <laughs> the, the, the bad stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I do think that life is too short for bad horror movies. And I do think there are more bad horror movies out there than there are good horror movies. So the trick really is to find the good ones and, uh, and spend your time on those. But that's no different from any other genre. And it's no different from any other medium. I mean, there's plenty of bad literature out there. Uh, so don't 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 waste your life on that. Right. Well, I, I wanted to ask you a quick question, slightly off. Well, it's on the topic of horror. When you think of horror, older horror films, what? We, and I mean, I don't know how. I mean, obviously, I consider you to be obvious an expert in horror. What would you consider to be some great examples? And let's go pre-Exorcist of great horror films that the average person who might not necessarily know of them or don't watch haven't seen them especially a listener who has some fear of horror but that you think might be great to watch just to get people more into horror without having to worry as much about the most obvious types of of method horror film methods that we have these days right well horror of course goes back to the the first days of cinema. I mean, that's one thing that interests me about horror is that whenever humanity invent, invents a new medium, they start making horror for that medium. That goes for virtual reality, uh, computer games, movies, and so on. Um, so there are many very early horror movies, but I think they would probably bore most people. I know my film historian colleagues would probably hunt me down and <laughs> uh, slice open my veins and drink my blood if they heard me saying this, but um, I wouldn't I wouldn't encourage most listeners to seek out uh, the, the German silent movie Nosferatu from 1922, mm -hmm. for example. Um, but I think once we move into the 1930s with the monster movies from Universal Studios like Dracula and Frankenstein, um, they have qualities that I think would appeal even to modern viewers. Um, they're usually based on literary works mm -hmm. uh, and they they're made at a time when the conventions of Hollywood filmmaking have begun to crystallize. Uh, so they don't seem so alien, so foreign. Um, they're generally suspenseful, generally interesting. Um, another suggestion might be to look to the so-called um, hammer horror movies of mm -hmm. the, that's pre or post second world war. Uh, some stunning uh, Dracula movies, for example, um, that would, I think also interest people. Um, so, so those would be some recommendations. And, of course, we talked about Hitchcock, Psycho, um, Night of the Living Dead, groundbreaking uh, zombie movie from 1968 or 9. Mm. It's in black and white by George Romero. Um, but that, that, I think that would be a, a good horror movie to watch because it's not just about grossing people out. It's not just about scaring people. It actually wants to, it has a message. It has a lot of heart. But it's also very bleak, very disturbing. Right. Yeah, that's that's the point I think that you're making. You've been making it consistently 
the good horror films are the ones that have messages to them, even if the message, sometimes the message isn't as obvious, sometimes they hit you right on the head with the message, but um, we think of uh, the the sequel to Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, which of course is much gross. It's in color and suddenly it's got a lot of grossing, gross parts mm. in it, but uh, the concepts and the ideas of the zombies walking through a shopping mall is just, uh, is you know, it's pretty obvious, but still it's, it's an interesting way of looking at uh, back at the time that movie came out, uh, consumer society, so to speak. Yeah. So... I wanted to mention that while we were thinking, while I was thinking of it, because we're sort of right in the middle of that, especially the stupid part. Because I said, there's like you've already said, there's plenty of smart horror films out there. It's sometimes mm-hmm. just a matter of knowing what they are. We talked yeah. a little bit also about kids already when we talked about the morality part and some of the other ones. But uh, I'm assuming, just like many of the rest of the chapters, you were able to find some studies or some information that gave you some sense. Um, related to children and horror, and, and I th- and I think we all, mo- the average person, I'm sure, would agree that a horror film, while some of them might be okay for kids, or you know, depending on their ages, there's still a need to to be careful, just because they're kids. Yes, um, and I did find a lot of studies, especially from uh, media psychologists, who took a lot of interest in the effects of scary movies on kids uh, back in the 1980s, probably because of some well-publicized uh, horror movie releases like uh, Gremlins. Now, Gremlins was, I think it was allowed for kids over the age of seven in the U.S., but it's a really dark. I mean, I rewatched it with my own kids a couple of years ago, and I was surprised at how dark and scary some some parts of, of Gremlins um, are. Um and so, and so the whole controversy over the rating of Gremlins actually led to the, uh, to the PG-13 mm-hmm. classification being introduced in the American film classification system. As did Indiana um, Jones and the Temple of Doom. That was another one exactly. where even though that wasn't a horror film, there were her- definite horrific elements, including yes. scenes of child abuse and such. That uh, I, I, Most people say this in the United States, is that certain directors can get away with a lot more in their films than other directors can. And Spielberg's always been one of those folks. Poltergeist was rated PG, and yet it's definitely not what I would consider to be a PG movie for the frightenest part of it. So, um, But I agree with you that uh, there is no question that kids, it's still a matter of, of the Guardian making sure that they have a sense. And like you say, don't watch, don't let the kids watch them by themselves. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the that's one of the take home messages of that chapter is that horror movies can do bad things to kids. I mean, they can put images into the kids' minds that that shouldn't be there. They can cause uh, sleep disturbances, mild behavioral disturbances. Um, but there is also an element here of of figuring out how best to protect kids. And it may not be the case that the best way to protect kids is to keep them from scary movies because eventually they will watch a scary movie. And if they don't know how to approach a scary movie as a movie, uh, if they have never seen a horror movie, they might be overwhelmed. They will not be able to predict the jump scares. They will have a hard time reminding themselves that it's just fiction and illusions and special effects. Um, And so my advice to anybody who is concerned about kids watching horror movies would be first off, don't let them watch, you know, adult horror movies. Um, but secondly, uh, help them ease into the, you know, fascinating universe of, of scary stories. Find something that is age appropriate because there are horror movies for kids. Um, and, and horror so, books and such. I mean, there's literature, yeah. horror literature. Maybe start with something like that where theoretically it's much easier for a child to put it down if they're getting scared. You know, you just walk away from the book. But yes. also, you know, that the Goosebumps series was meant to be exactly that. Yeah, and I think they work uh, t- to that purpose. So um, that that would be a good, a good, a, a good thing, I think. But the whole, I mean, this is something... Uh, I've become increasingly interested in this whole issue of kids and scary entertainment since I wrote the book uh, because I finished it like a year ago. I think it just takes a long time for the whole process to finish. Uh, So my group and I have been doing some research on 
recreational fear and kids. Uh, and uh, we did a pilot study, actually two of our uh, lab interns did a pilot study in Danish daycare institutions in the spring to figure out whether uh, the teachers in uh, nurseries and kindergartens scared the kids on purpose. And we thought, we're not going to find anything. It turns out we found, found a lot. You know, those kids are constantly being frightened with um, uh, scary stories, mildly scary stories, different activities where they, the, the, the grown-ups will pretend to be a monster and chase mm -hmm. the kids around. Um, they have different songs that have scary elements. Uh, and, the, and the teachers see it as part of their duty to uh, help the kids um, train their emotion regulation skills. The kids need to learn what it feels like to be afraid, and they need to be able to regulate their own fear, because that's a skill that we all need in life. And one way in which you can train that skill is to expose yourself to um, scary stories. So, so this is something that I've become really interested in, the, the positive effects of horror on kids. Again, we're not talking, you know, the exorcist in, in, uh, in, in, uh, in kindergartens. We're talking age-appropriate stuff. Yeah, I think you've, your point at the very beginning of the book is a little bit of fear is not a bad thing. <laughs> it's, not, yeah. it's nothing wrong with that. I think the other thing is related to it is that we've, kids have always been scared as part of their upbringing. I mean, stranger danger and all these kinds of things. I mean, you're basically telling a kid that anybody they don't know is could theoretically be somebody that's going to hurt them. And that's a, and you know, those are the kind, and even around the house, parents learn, teach kids different ways to be careful. And often it's based on fear, as you pointed out. I think, so. and I think even historically, uh, cautionary tales can be seen as a kind of ancestor of the modern day horror film. You know, the kinds of stories you would tell kids 200 years ago or, a thousand years ago about what would happen if they strayed from the path in the woods or mm -hmm. um, failed to live up to certain moral standards of the community. And th th those stories are very often horror stories. So as you start to get to the end of the book, then the next section, and, and this is good, probably as good a place as any to sort of get into a sum up routine, and that's society. One of the things I've always wondered, or I, you know, maybe I've read it in the past, or I'm just not sure, is that are there indications that horror as a genre in film goes up and down depending on the uh, way society is working? Like right now, we're in the middle of a pandemic that we thought was hopefully coming to an end, but didn't. Um, this last year, year and a half, has been incredibly stressful for people. And then the 30s, when some of the earliest monster movies came out, was right in the middle of the Depression. But then there are other times where theoretically society's going reasonably well. Do we see as much horror during those? Or is it something that tends to focus more on times where things aren't necessarily as good? Yeah, that's a little difficult to say. I think uh, all horror scholars would agree that horror movies are symptomatic of their societal historical context. So they reflect certain things in society and they certainly go up and down. And in the last year, I mean, 2020 was one of the best years for horror ever, which is on the face of it paradoxical because why would you want to be scared by a movie if you're finding existence itself to be scary? Uh, but that points to, I think, a potential kind of therapeutic potential of uh, or ability of horror movies, that they can help us confront anxiety, but in a kind of contained, controllable, safe context. Um, so I do think that times of crisis are uh, maybe especially conducive to horror movies. I mean, they provide good soil in which horror movies can grow. Uh, but even times of, I mean, Denmark is one of the most peaceful countries on the planet. Danish people are among the most happy people of the planet. And horror is doing pretty well here. Um, so it, it, it's complicated and it's hard to say which kind of um, social or cultural context is, is more conducive to horror. But it's certainly the case that times of crisis do seem to, to, to be nourishing of, of scary movies. So then 
in the end, you basically have you've presented your information to the reader, and now you're you know you're finally getting to the point of saying to somebody, okay, they want to know, okay, what should I do then if I'm really ready? And then you give some ideas, which we don't need to go into great detail because I think most of your points are pretty well made, including going all the way back to the beginning of the book, which is maybe if it's your first horror film, you don't watch it by yourself <laughs> mm. or you watch it at home. But uh, based on what your your research has done, what would you, you know, how do you tell somebody that you should try horror films? And do you give specific suggestions to particular films or is it more of a matter of telling people what to be, what to expect and be prepared for? Uh, it depends on who's asking and what exactly they're asking. I, I, I give a lot of lectures to, uh, you know, public lectures and, and people who would never watch a horror movie sometimes show up because they're interested in why other people are fascinated by those movies. And sometimes they will ask me those kinds of questions. And I usually tell them what to avoid, like those, you know, gory, high jump scare, scare frequency horror movies. And then suggest one or two horror movies that are clever and well-made and so on. Uh, but that's mainly for people who have an impoverished understanding of what horror movies are. Um, and of course, those pieces of advice that you mentioned before, you know, think about the context in which you're watching the movie. Be very aware of uh, sound levels and lighting in the surroundings. Uh, watch it with people you, you trust and, and like. Um, and, and, and to people who are very nervous, I would usually recommend that they watch older horror movies because it's easier to distance yourself from an older horror movie uh, than from a very recent one because psychologically, the distance between, between yourself and what is depicted in the movie is greater. People will be watching, you know, old-fashioned clothes in the movie. They will maybe use quaint, old-fashioned slang. And so it's easier to remind yourself, ah, this is just an old movie that's trying to scare me. So that's, you know, another piece of advice. Just watch old horror movies. Well, as I say, I, I think the book does a great job of trying to lay out horror in a scholarly way, but def as I mentioned before, but also in a way that hopefully there's information here that helps to uh, give people things to think about, especially if they're, as you, as the title says, nervous person. And you say there's nothing wrong with that sometimes, but uh, obviously you're continuing to do your research, and since that is your life's research, it's an interesting idea, as you mentioned at the beginning. Uh, are you working on other studies or are you just continuing to compile or what, what are, where are your thoughts is the, as Oxford university press pushed you to, in other directions to, to come up with other ideas related to horror? They haven't pushed yet, but, um, my group and I are pursuing several, uh, we're doing several studies at the moment. Uh, we're continuing to do haunted house studies where we, collect data you mean from the, the live commercial. ones where people yes. walk through them got it exactly uh, because those are high intensity attractions and we can get some really interesting physiological and behavioral data on on what happens when people are really scared but also enjoying it uh, so we're doing some of those studies uh, well, we're about looking a month into or so before it becomes <laughs> the time of the year to be prepared for it exactly the month of halloween that's when that's when it really uh, hits the high gear uh, but also some some studies we're designing some studies to um, to get a better understanding of the social dynamics of horror. I mean, what are the social benefits of watching horror movies together? Does it bring people closer to one another? Uh, we're looking into the different kinds of horror fans that might exist. It looks like uh, some people watch horror movies for the adrenaline, but other people watch them to to learn about the world and themselves. Um, so really, we have a, a bunch of studies lined up. Uh, we're just waiting to waiting for the world to become more normal so we can get back into the lab and, and collect data. Well, it's been great to talking to you. I've been speaking with Matthias Clay Clayson, the author of the book, A Very Nervous Person's Guide to Horror Movies. And um, as I say, the book is scheduled to come out in the next month or so based on when we're recording. So keep an eye out for it. Uh, Oxford University Press. It'll be available in all the regular formats, and hopefully people will 
definitely look at it as, as, as a book that has a lot of interesting information. I particularly, like I said before, liked the uh, scientific uh, sociological bent you took because I think it's an interesting way to look at, at movies in general and in this particular genre. So I really appreciate the time, and uh, I hope uh, things go well with the book. Thanks very much, Joel. I've enjoyed talking with you. My thanks to Matthias. If you aren't a fan of horror movies, I hope his book gives you a new way to view them. If you are a fan, I think you will enjoy his points. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.